0: We have two ambassadors on the next two special episodes of In the Arena to mark the 25th anniversary of the normalization of relations between Vietnam and the United States. First up is former Ambassador Ted Osius, uh, nowadays with Google in the Asia Pacific, with some very interesting insights about uh, his time on the ground at different points of normalization and how he sees the future of Vietnam and United States relations. And then we're going to hear uh, from the ambassador from Vietnam to the United States, Ambassador Haakim Nock himself, uh, tell us uh, how he sees uh, normalization and the future of relations. Hope you'll tune in. This is Luke Kinnettig, and you're in the arena with leaders and citizens who take character-based action. In the Arena is a proud member of the Democracy Group podcast network. For more information, visit democracygroup.org. It's a, it's an honor to have in the arena Ambassador Ted Osius. He served as U.S. Ambassador to Vietnam from 2014 to 2017. He's had a long and very distinguished career in foreign service and as a top uh, foreign policy advisor. Uh, he's currently Uh, Well, serving in Singapore as a senior executive for Google's Asia-Pacific business. He joins me today very graciously to discuss the 25th anniversary of the normalization of relations between the United States and Vietnam. Ambassador Osius, uh, welcome to End the Arena, and it's a real honor to have you here. Thank you, Luke. I'm really happy to talk with you, especially about Vietnam. And I think you set a record for us, you know, covering the most distance uh, in taping this uh, uh, podcast uh, with you around the world and starting your day and me ending mine. Um, Your role, if I have it right, and you can, you know, enlighten me, and normalization was more on the ground and in country than than anything else, right from our early days. And if I have it right, you spent a a chunk of it on a bicycle going across the country and able to speak uh, the native language there, I mean, how, how did that come about? And I, I mean, it sounds fun, adventurous. It sounds like probably it's pretty bumpy when you're right there on the, you know, at the ground floor of this.
1: <laughs> well, uh, bumpy is a good word for it. I, I in 1994, I first asked if I could serve in Vietnam, and that was uh, just before normalization. But I thought it would be very exciting and and fascinating as a young officer to go and try to build a foundation for a relationship. Uh, between two former adversaries. So I I went there, uh, I served the first chargé d'Affaires and the first U.S. ambassador there. And during that first tour, when we were really setting everything up, I had the chance to ride a bicycle uh, from Hanoi to Saigon. It's about 1200 miles. uh, And bumpy is a very good word for it. The the roads were not very great at that time. There were big trucks, uh, but I got a group of friends together and we we rode the length of the country. And it was a really great opportunity to see how Vietnam was already changing. It was poor at the time, uh, but you could see the energy and the the desire to rebuild, uh, to put the nation back together. Uh, I'll just tell you a very, very quick story about that ride. I stopped on a bridge in the DMZ, the area that used to separate the North from the South and I was, I was just stopping to take a picture and eat a granola bar, uh, and there was a woman standing there who started speaking to me, and this is in Vietnamese, and my Vietnamese was pretty good, uh, and we were looking out over some ponds, and some of them were filled with brush, some with water, and I said, well, what are those ponds? And she said, well, those are, those are where the, uh, the Americans drop bombs. And then she said, you know, they dropped bombs on my village. And I lost a lot of, I lost a lot of family members. And I was feeling kind of worse and worse. But I thought, I've got to be honest with her. I'm I'm an American and I represent the US government. So I said, um, I said, I, I served, I, I said I, I was serving for uh, for in the US Embassy, and she said, she thought for a moment and she looked at me and she said, Beza <laughs> chi we are brother and sister. And she used this familial language that uh, is very special in Vietnamese. She, older sister, younger brother. And it was meaningful, so meaningful to me, as a sort of a symbol of the, the spirit of reconciliation that I, I spoke about it during my confirmation hearing 17 years later.
0: Wow. I mean, that must have been an early sign that, hey, this this could work or it was going to work because it wasn't a given that normalization, A, would happen and B, it would work. I know there was some, you know, preceding economic activity that had happened and, you know, I work at the McCain Institute, so I should get this question, I shouldn't say out of the way, I'm proud to ask it, but, you know, do you think normalization, I know there are others involved, but do you think it would have happened without Senator John McCain's support and advocacy for it?
1: Maybe eventually, but it certainly wouldn't have happened when it did. He, he was very courageous. And and if you think about the the politics of the time, you have President Clinton, who had not served, who was running against Bob Dole, who was a war hero, and was opposed to normalization. So really, without the support of brave people like John McCain and John Kerry, there's I don't think it possibly could have been done uh, at that time. Maybe maybe years later, um, but that. That sort of makes me think about who John McCain is and why, why he did what he did. The day before my confirmation hearing, I went to his office and I was seeking his support. I thought, John McCain supports me, then really it's <laughs> going to be fine because everyone, everyone will, will defer to him. Um, and he, he walked me over to a place in his office where there was a telegram. Frame telegram on the on the wall. It was signed by Averill Harriman, who was part of the Paris Peace Talks. Uh, it was 1968, it was September 13, 1968 was the date. And he had written, and I looked this up, because I wanted to remember, Le Duc mentioned that the DRV had intended to re- release Admiral McCain's son, one of the three pilots freed recently, but he had refused. Now think about that. This was—he had been shot down. He, his body was broken into pieces. He had been bayoneted in the groin. His ribs were broken. He was saying, "No, the the uh, the, co- the code, w- which he, the code of conduct of prisoners of war, which he respected, was more important to him than his personal freedom." And so he turned down the warden when he was asked. And believe me, they punished him for it. They. They threw him into solitary. Uh, they made his life hell for the next four years, or actually, he was solitary most of the time for the next four years. Uh, but not betraying the code was more important to him than getting out to avoid all that suffering. And that's who he was. And I think that's a, you know, uh, that was a man who was so, so believed in his country and what was right for his country that he would set himself aside, his own personal needs aside uh, to do right. And he wasn't the only brave one. I, I think he was, there's no one who was braver, but John Kerry was brave. Pete Peterson, the first US ambassador to Vietnam, served with John McCain in Hualo prison, suffered as much as he did, uh, and then went back and was part of making peace. Uh, and then on the Vietnamese side, Ambassador Levan bon Ban, William Kautak, the former foreign minister, there were people who had real guts.
0: Uh, they took the real kind of alliance and, 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 and coming together. Um, what do you think the uh, the impact uh, has been? I mean, I could cite statistics. I'm sure you, you can if you look at trade, if you look at cooperation and the like. But, uh, you know, 25 years, if you can kind of. Kind of summit, uh, maybe a little bit of not not where we would have been without it, but kind of where we ended up with it, I suppose. Well, it's huge. Uh,
1: You look at, there have been two aircraft carrier visits to Vietnam in the last couple of years. Think about that. Uh, There have been American helicopters that have flown in the air uh, in Vietnam. The Vietnamese do more with the United States militarily than with any other country in the world. And this is part of the world where we we need allies we need partners uh, the the trade balance or the volume of trade you you mentioned it went from less than 500 million dollars a year when i first was there to almost 60 billion dollars annual trade last year and that's a, a phenomenal leap we've been collaborating with the vietnamese on human health on the environment on peacekeeping the vietnamese who suffered so much from war have have trained with Americans on how to do peacekeeping and, and we collaborate on everything from North Korea to the South China Sea. Uh, The, 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 our partnership is real. It's, and that was only possible. I would say again, because brave people saw that there was an opportunity to turn former adversaries into partners and they worked hard to make it happen.
0: Mm, And clearly partnership on, on, on both sides. Um, you know, tough subject, but not one you shied away from. I've, you know, tried to do my homework on this, and I think I was aware of it before, but, you know, I see where you, you had a card you would carry around as ambassador that talked about where Vietnam could do better by by human rights, and you weren't shy to pull that card out and say, you know, I, I haven't read the card, but, uh, you know, talk about that. I mean, you didn't just say, you know, let's talk about reports. You kind of challenged them uh, on that. that. That strikes me as pretty pretty bold.
1: Well, I, I, I kept, kept it in my shirt pocket uh, from the day I was confirmed to the day I left the job. Uh, it was a little laminated card, and it was pretty simple. It had the list of names of people whom we believed should be released. They were prisoners of conscience, and it was a list of systemic changes that we urged the Vietnamese to consider. I wouldn't say it was demands. It was it was, there were all areas that we thought Vietnam would actually be, would, would be a better society if, if, uh, if they could adhere to these international norms that were listed on this very small and simple part. I Wanted to keep it simple. And I wanted every single officer in my embassy to be a human rights officer. And we were, and we made progress. I, I can't say that it's all done. There's still things, there's still big differences between how we view human rights and, and the Vietnamese do. Uh, but the way we were able to make progress, I believe, was by showing respect. And a good example is when, the, when President Obama met with Nguyen Phu Chong, the General Secretary of the Communist Party, in the Oval Office, he spoke about human rights. And he said, Mr. General Secretary, it's not because we're perfect. It's, it's just, very, this is very central to who we are as Americans. So we have to have this conversation and we have to be honest with each other. And I think that's respectful. We had, when I was there, we, I had with my counterparts, respectful, but very firm and very difficult conversations uh, about our differences, about religious freedom, human rights, rule of law. I believed I was, I was uh, able to be effective because I showed respect I felt that respect. I wasn't making it up. Um, but I think that's the way if you acknowledge shared humanity and show respect to each other, then all kinds of things are possible. And if you don't, then very little is possible.
0: That makes sense. And you say all all kinds of things are possible. That to me gets at the future. And I think we should talk a little bit about future and and leadership. You know, what is the future of US Vietnam relations? And and I feel like you know, we can't ignore the Elephant in the room, so to speak. Uh, COVID. In fact, the, the the ambassador from Vietnam to the uh, U.S. Ambassador Nock would likely be uh, joining this conversation. We're hopeful to talk to him later in the week, but he's busy helping repatriation flights for, for Vietnamese to be able to fly back home, uh, given what they're seeing in the United States and I'm sure uh, other places um, as well. But not completely setting COVID aside, w- what does he think the future holds? Well, I would
1: let's start with COVID. They've had zero deaths in Vietnam as a result of COVID. That is not an accident. There were, a few years ago, 2003, uh, Vietnam experienced SARS and learned a lot of lessons from SARS. And even before that, uh, it was experiencing the ravages of HIV AIDS. And the United States collaborated with Vietnam on public health, specifically on HIV as a result of a decision made by President George W. Bush and then on and CDC worked really closely with the public health apparatus in Vietnam over the years, uh, and it's been a really fruitful collaboration. It, I think is good for America's health when you can stop diseases at the at the source. It's very, it's it's a very good investment for the United States, but it's been very good for Vietnam, and they and they are going to recover quickly from COVID, and so. They may not achieve the kind of growth levels that they would have without COVID, but Vietnam's already growing again. And uh, Vietnam, I think, will continue to have, will continue to be an inflow, of foreign direct investment. And I think our economic relationship with Vietnam will continue to flourish. And I see no reason why the security relationship won't flourish as well. Uh, We've made our partnership substantive. We've built trust by doing things together that matter. And that's really the way to build trust and build partnership, is to do important things together that matter. And not just the things that we want, but the things that Vietnam wants and the things that we, both countries benefit from. And that's, uh, that was something, an effort that was really supported by John McCain when he was Senator. He, he visited when I was there, and he, he also understood the language of respect. He knew he could get so much more, and uh, he, his visits could be so productive He could use his stature and his credibility to move things forward only if he he only showed respect. And so he did.
0: So you're working out of uh, Singapore with responsibilities, business responsibilities across the entire region. I I think you'd be maybe uniquely positioned in in many respects to talk about this. How do you see Vietnam's leadership, their role in Southeast Asia, the world? I mean, uh, from someone like me that reads the papers, you can see where they're stepping up. But, you know, that's surface level, my observation.
1: Well, I've watched it over uh, 25 years uh, from when Vietnam first joined the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, which had originally been created to contain communism. Uh, It was ironic, uh, but Vietnam has become not only a, a really important contributing member of ASEAN, but I would say in many ways, the strategic leader of ASEAN. There's no country in Southeast Asia with with greater clarity of strategic thought, especially when it comes to something like the South China Sea. Uh, Vietnam's diplomats are very talented, very good, very effective. V- Vietnam's leadership is quiet. They don't, they don't go around po- pointing at themselves all the time. Uh, they, they don't, it's not in your face diplomacy. It's very, it's, it's quiet, uh, considered respectful diplomacy. And, it, and it's very effective, uh, especially in Asia. So Vietnam is right now the, the chair of ASEAN. It's been the chair multiple times of, of APEC. Uh, it's a leader in the region and a really significant one, especially when it comes to uh, matters of international security.
0: I, um, you know, I think a little over a year ago, probably less, uh, a big event at the Institute of Peace, they had a big delegation, we had a big delegation. I got the along I guess because of the the McCain Institute got to spend a day and got to see some of that firsthand when you talk about quiet but but effective and very good and it it was it was a it was a fascinating a fascinating day um we're coming kind of close to the end here I think but what do you wish you've spent so much time in the region you speak you speak the language what do you wish more Americans knew about modern-day Vietnam I mean I am going to visit I will visit um, but kind of tied to the legacy of normalization, but just kind of tied to, to, to you know, uh, people who are trying to make progress.
1: Well, I've thought about this a lot. I actually uh, just finished writing a book on this, this topic. Uh, I, I've been thinking about reconciliation and what makes it work. It, the war was a complicated one. It was a war between the United States and Vietnam, but it was also a war between ideologies, a war between the North and the South, a civil war. And reconciliation doesn't happen when two governments sign papers saying we're reconciled. It involves people, it involves people, the exchange of people, uh, tourists going back and forth, educators, students, business people going back and forth. That's how you tie together two nations and that's how you really reconcile. It Also importantly involves the Vietnamese American community in the United States. And there are still wounds from that war, among veterans and Vietnamese American community that won't heal. So not everybody is going to feel good about reconciliation. But you know, my belief is that process of reconciliation is really important, and it comes about when you sh- you recognize the shared humanity in each other. You show respect. You do things together that matter. Uh, you build trust and partnership between peoples and between nations and we've been doing it successfully for 25 years, but we can't pretend the work is done. We can't rest on our laurels and think, oh, it's all done. No, you have to keep doing it. And so if you make a promise, you say, we're gonna clean up Agent Orange, you have to finish the job. If you say, "Uh, we're gonna develop a trade relationship, this was the TPP that we invited uh, Vietnam to join, Really, we had an obligation to finish that job. Alas, we were not able to do that. So then you have to find an alternative. How else can we build a really strong economic architecture And uh, where Vietnam's on the inside partnering with us? So I think you have to stick by your word. John also understood that. He, he was he was a
0: man of his word. Well. One final question. Have, have you come up with a name for your book yet? Is, is it finished or coming out? or What, do, what's it, what are you going to call it? Thank you.
1: It? Yeah, well, uh, my first boss in, in Vietnam was Pete Peterson, who's, who was in prison with John McCain. And very early in my tenure, he said, you know, nothing is impossible in the U.S.-Vietnam relationship. Nothing. And so my book is Nothing is Impossible. Because I think it's amazing to think of where we've come in such a short time from being such bitter enemies to being such strong partners. So maybe nothing is
0: impossible. Uh, boy, you can't end on a better note than that. Ambassador Osius, I really appreciate your, your, your time. And uh, thank you for being in the arena and please uh, keep going and we hope we can uh, kind of keep up with you down the line. Thank you very much, Luke. It was a real pleasure to talk with you. This podcast is produced by Patrick McCann and Justin Kessler. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell your friends, or leave a review.